Hello and welcome to Piece by Piece, the podcast where we piece together what makes a world without violence. While we don't always see it, gender-based violence is all around us. At ANOVA, we believe in a future without violence. But what does a future without violence look like? And how do we get there? My name is Dr. Annalise Trudell and I'm your host. This week's episode, Sexual Assault and the Justice System with Karen Bellimar. Now today is our season two premiere and welcome. If you're new, I'm Dr. Annalise Trudell, the Manager of Education, Training and Research at ANOVA. Today's episode is heavy. Uh, note to our listeners that we discuss sexual assault and harassment uh, in quite detail around what that might mean going through the criminal justice process. We talk about what survivors can expect when going through the justice system, practical knowledge for those who want the system to change, and why less than 10% of survivors of sexual assault pursue the legal system. It is an incredibly timely conversation in light of what's been occurring this past few weeks at this point around Western University and other campuses joining in alignment to call out the sexual violence that happens much too often on campuses and why we actually see very few reports formally of that sexual violence occurring. I think everyone can get some good tidbits out of this episode. I know I did. Karen Bellimar is an experienced lawyer representing survivors in criminal cases and in human rights claims for sexual assault and harassment. She also represents victims of abuse in sports and sits on various screening and disciplinary panels for provincial and national sports organizations. Karen's a member of the panel of lawyers available through the Ontario Independent Legal Advice for Survivors of Sexual Assault program. She's a former member of ANOVA's board of directors, and she currently sits on the London VAW Community Advocacy Group, which reviews London Police Service's unfounded sexual assault cases. So frankly, she's an expert, and she's living proof that not all heroes wear capes. Let's dive into the conversation. What a week, um, Karen. I know you and I are sort of joining together right now to have a conversation that's incredibly timely about sexual assault uh, and the law and specifically what um, survivors might need to know out of that. But I just want to like acknowledge that I think there's such a heaviness and such a, a weariness to sort of entering this conversation, at least for me. So thank you for being willing to do it and kind of joining me in it today. Well, it's my pleasure, Annalise. I'm, I'm really happy to talk uh, to you today and uh, really honored to be asked to talk uh, on an ANOVA podcast. So thank you. So maybe you can... Um, Tell us a little bit about the work that you're currently doing and sort of why, why it's important to you, why this specific topic's important to you. Well, my background is as a, a couple of decades of um, criminal prosecution. And so I started there uh, getting an interest in sexual violence and uh, really kind of specialized in those kind of cases as a prosecutor. So when I left, um, that interest continued, but also took on... Um, a new life and, and I started seeing sexual violence through a different lens. Uh, I, I had got my master's of law and I, then I opened eventually a, a practice that just focuses on survivors of sexual violence. And honestly, when I left the Crown's office, I didn't really think that kind of a practice was possible. Um, but there's been some developments in the law and in sort of the Me Too movement arrived. And so, um, you know, I was really interested in seeing how a law practice could give more voice to survivors of sexual violence, because in the legal world, they have very little. 
Um, and so my practice focuses in three areas. One is criminal law, um, where victims don't have representation. And I say victims instead of survivors, um, because the, the legal world does use that term. They use the term complainants or victims, and I sort of interchange those. But uh, complainants aren't allowed really legal representation in the criminal world unless there's very specific applications by the defense, and that's for personal records or for previous uh, or other sexual history. In those cases, the courts have recognized there's privacy interests and complainants are allowed to have their own legal uh, representation and I do that work. I also do human rights work um, around sexual violence and abuse. And um, I'm also doing uh, work in the sport world where there's um, abuse among athletes, between uh, coaches and athletes. Um, I represent athletes at disciplinary hearings. And, you know, I'm, I'm really active in just safe sport prevention and, and new mechanisms that are, are coming out that are going to hopefully be more effective to protect athletes and, and give them recourse. So it's, it's just really meaningful to me to give voice, but also, you know, it's sexual violence is so tied to equality. And, um, you know, for me, this is just a way to try to move the dial because women will never be equal if we still live in a world with sexual violence. So true. So very true. Mm -hmm. You have such a wide range sort of, of um, legal areas that you enter around the issue of sort of supporting survivors in particular. And I think if we can take a step back and sort of do a, a law primer 101 here for a second, um, you know, what is the law around sexual assault? Um, I, you sort of highlighted that there's both criminal and civil in some ways, but like, what is the law in Canada on sexual assault? Uh, I think a lot of us have um, some TV show knowledge from the US in particular, and we might use that example in our minds often, but I, I know that there are some differences that are pretty key. So yeah, law primer 101, what are we talking about? Well, you know, I won't go into um, US law because I'm, I'm not, um, you know, an expert in that area. But what I can say is that Canadian law with respect to sexual assault, in some sense, is quite simple, uh, but there are complexities as well. So, you know, sexual, sexual assault in, uh, as a criminal charge and as a civil tort are really the same. And that is uh, the violation of an individual's sexual integrity uh, without their valid communicated consent. Um, so sexual assault, you know, historically there, there were different ways to categorize it. There's the, the offense of rape that no longer exists. The, the offense of sexual assault has a wide spectrum. It can go from a very minor uh, touching over the clothes of a, of a breast to a very serious um, penetration with violence. So the, the offense of sexual assault covers a wide range. The, the penalties uh, are the things that reflect the seriousness of, of a crime. Uh, when it comes to the, really the difference between civil and criminal is just in the standard of proof. So in criminal law, sexual assault has to be proved to a very high standard, proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And then the consequence is different. It could be a loss of liberty. In, in the civil world, um, the standard proof is called a balance of probabilities. It's really like 51%. So it's an easier um, sort of tort to prove that that's the, the legal terminology, 
but um, you also have to prove that there's a connection to damages and the, and the recourse in civil law is just money. It's whether you've suffered financially as a result of the sexual assault. Um, and um, so that has to be proved and pain and suffering can be taken into account as far as um, financial compensation. Um, but my focus, um, I don't focus on civil law very much. Uh, I, um, and I think though that where the complexity comes into play is consent and understanding what consent is. And also, uh, so I wanna just talk about that a little bit. And I also want to talk about something called the perfect victim myth, because mm. I think that's something that people uh, embrace unknowingly and it, it's um, it's harmful to everybody. So right. consent means valid communicated consent. This is what the courts have said. And so communicated consent, what, what does that mean? Um, well, that means yes means yes. There used to be a sort of a saying of no means no. And the courts came to, to indicate that, well, no, what about silence? Does silence mean yes or does it mean no? Right. And the court said silence is not consent. And so the courts have been very clear. There's no such thing as implied consent, assumed consent. In order to be consent, it has to be communicated by either words or actions. So that means that if you're unconscious, if you're asleep, you can't consent. And so mm -hmm. if you wake up at a party in a coat room where someone is doing something to you, which is quite common, um, that is sexual assault. And I've had very intelligent women not know that. And I think so this idea of you cannot imply that because someone is, you know, uh, drunk and, and maybe dressed provocatively that everything's okay. You know, we all know mm -hmm. that, but that's supported in the law. Um, and valid consent is voluntary co consent. And so that means that um, you can't, submission is not consent. So if there's force involved and you just submit, that's not valid consent. That's not voluntary. So just and a second on that one. Yeah. So if someone's sort of physically forcing you down and then you sort of through lots of probably instinct, you um, realize that if I sort of submit, I will receive less harm through this process. That submitting and sort of not fighting back physically actually is not consent. That's um, sort of written into the law in that way. It is, it is that, that you've just simply submitted. That's not voluntary, that's being forced. Right. Now there's, there's something less than that, that there's lots of discussion about called you know, social coercion. Mm. That's a very interesting topic. And, but at this point, the law doesn't recognize social coercion as sort of mitigating or, or eliminating the consent involved. But so, if there's physical force, that's different. And so just, you brought it up. So now I need to ask, what is social coercion? Where, why is there a debate in the law about that one? Well, everyone sort of understands how um, one can be sort of pressured into something that they weren't originally interested in. Um, and, you know, there's, there's all kinds of ways that that happens and reasons that that happens. Um, and so someone can be left with a situation where they ended up consenting, but walk away saying, 
that was not what I wanted. Why did that happen? You know? And so there's, there's a good argument that, well, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem like extracting consent through coercion. That doesn't seem like that is appropriate that, that that should be allowed, you know, mm-hmm. courts haven't gone that far. They haven't said, well, that's your, your consent isn't valid in those circumstances, but, you know, we'll wait for a case where, where the, the coercion is so strong that maybe the courts will see that as, as vitiating um, consent. So what that could look like in sort of a situation is someone, a woman's at a party, um, perhaps she's like 17 and there's tons of peer pressure happening sort of in a group context. Um, and uh, he's pursuing her all night and her friends are saying, just come on, just do it. And then sex happens. And the next day she is not feeling good at all about that. She felt very, very pressured socially into that. Um, but right now we haven't quite grappled with that in terms of the law. That's Right. That's right. And and that could be an interesting kind of test case, because in a situation like that, you would expect that the offender, the perpetrator would know, you know, that's a key part. If if he knows that she's basically submitting to a lot of psychological pressure, then he knows it isn't really voluntary consent. Right. Um, And that's I think that might be an interesting um, test case to to go to a court. Um, but at this point, as long as she ultimately said, okay, then consent has been provided. Thanks for indulging me on the social oh, yeah. coercion. The other sort of interesting thing about communicated consent is, uh, is intoxication, you know, and um, the law is clear that if you're unconscious, no, that there's no valid consent. But what about if you're so intoxicated that you're really not thinking clearly um, and that you know, you have no memory even of what happened. Um, the courts are coming down on sort of both sides of that issue. And so, um, you know, we need more clarification, more guidance from the Supreme Court of Canada on that issue and what courts should be looking at. There are cases where there's been, you know, hotel video surveillance showing how drunk um, a, a complainant was um, and, the courts have found that she was incapable of consenting and and they found the accused guilty of sexual assault. But on the other hand, there's been cases, there's a famous case from Halifax of a a young woman who um, was basically too intoxicated to get back into a bar, takes a taxi home and is uh, found by a police officer in the taxi being sexually assaulted by the taxi cab driver, a complete stranger. She's in the back seat, he's in the front seat. And the judge actually, and and the complainant had no memory because she was completely intoxicated. Um, The judge ended up finding in that case, the trial judge that, well, she was drunk and, you know, basically fed into the myth that, you know, drunk women could be promiscuous. And so she doesn't remember if she consented or not. So there's a reasonable doubt. And, you know, that decision was met with outrage and protests and the case went to the uh, Nova Scotia Court of Appeal and it was reversed, uh, well, sent back for a new trial. Um, But that just sort of goes to show that, um, you know, courts don't always accept that extreme intoxication can vitiate or or make invalid um, consent. And, you know, as a sort of survivor's advocate, I, I hear this and I feel so incredibly uncomfortable um, in sitting in this sort of 
that fundamentally that's wrong. Like aside from the law, the notion that, um, I, if I am, if I've had enough alcohol or, or whatever substance that might be, that I am not clearly knowledgeable of what's all happening to me, then that's not consensual sex period. But the, like, oh, the court system is challenging on that. The other one that came to mind as you were sort of walking through, um, that we we've talked a lot about, especially in this past week, um, we've really sort of tried to hold that, you know, we, we often speak about the inebriation or how drunk she is and how that sort of poses a precarity um, and what that might mean. Rarely do we actually talk about his drunkenness and how that affects his behavior. And I know that there's been a few cases about that and I'm not, maybe you'll sort of provide something on that or not, but in terms of like from a social uh, educational lens, we know from the research that he, um, if he's inebriated, he is aroused by deterrence and more sexually aggressive in his behavior. And, and that's an interesting space for me to hold because, um, like how much accountability does he need to hold in spite of his drunkenness that he pursued sex. And I always sort of have these conversations with young men in our groups, um, that, you know, even if you're drunk, if you're driving, you're still responsible for the outcome of that action. Right. And so you should be responsible for the outcome of the sexual action while you're drunk. And, and they, and they are really, I mean, legally um, there's a provision in the criminal code that says you cannot rely on the defense of honest, but mistaken belief in consent. If it comes from self-induced intoxication. So, you know, the, the accused can't sort of say, oh, I was drunk as a defense, unless it goes to the extreme of, of sort of automatism, which is a, a case before the Supreme Court of Canada on, on other issues. And maybe no, we won't go there, but, you know, other than, and that is very extreme. Those cases, um, Chan and Sullivan are, you know, very, very extreme intoxication. So the usual kind of partying, you know, just got really drunk intoxication is not going to be a defense mm. um, to an accused who, who is charged with sexual assault. So it's something um, to, you know, keep in mind that that's, you, you have to have your wits about you in, in this kind of a situation. Um, sure. One of the disturbing things about the trial judge in that Halifax case was that he said, well, I wouldn't want to send my daughter home with that taxi cab. He's morally wrong, but I find him not guilty. <laughs> like, what oh, is goodness. the criminal justice system for, you know, if you, you know, you find the, the behavior reprehensible, but yet not criminal. So mm -hmm. a side note on that. I know you had brought up previously um, the sort of consent in the law and then the ideal victim. And I, I kind of wonder if we might be able to touch upon both. If you actually walked us through the experience of a survivor going into the court system sure. um, and what they might be facing through that process um, step-by-step. Yeah. Step. And I think, cause where my mind goes to that at least is that they are going to be judged against the perfect victim um, right. through that process. And so if we enter into that and sort of have that comparison walk through, that might be helpful. Sure. And so, yeah, the ideal victim is this myth um, that is this, um, this narrative is accepted over and over again in the criminal courts. Um, if anyone watched the Gian Gomeshi trial, I mean, it was full of it. Mary Heinen, that's how she um, attacked those witnesses, mm. a, a big part of that strategy. So the, the perfect victim um, narrative is just that if you are sexually assaulted, you 
run screaming from the room. Basically, you immediately tell someone, you report it to the police, you never speak to that person again, you cut all ties with that person. And, um, you know, you're uh, outwardly traumatized and act in a specific way that everyone accepts is how victims act. And of course, the reality is that very few people act in that way. And there's usually a lot of shame and self-blame by victims. And so they hide what happened and they often, um, you know, continue a relationship because the majority of sexual assaults are perpetrated by someone that you're in a relationship with. So, so the relationship may continue. There may even be consensual sex after that um, until uh, the person is ready to sort of deal with this issue that, that a sexual assault happens. So, um, so when one um, goes through the criminal justice system, um, you know, the, the big flaw in my, from my perspective is that they really are alone. They really have, um, you know, they may have some counseling support and and psychological and emotional support, which is fantastic if they do. And I always ask my clients, you know, are you connected that way? Because it's so important if you're going to get involved in a legal process to have that support. But they really don't know what to expect. And they go into a police interview. They they would likely have an appointment with a sexual assault investigator. They're going to give a videotape statement. And they really don't know what they should talk about and what they shouldn't. And so the end result ends up usually being that they over-disclose and they give information about private things that they really didn't need to talk about. And But now they're out there, right? And um, and in good, in good faith, right? Like a survivor yeah. going in, you know, wants to trust the police and sort of just wants to say the fullness of what their experience was. And sort of what you mean by they're alone is that the system isn't built in, that there's a lawyer sitting alongside them, coaching them, having supported them in a legal sense, that they're actually, they don't know where their words will go. They don't know what's wise or not, um, because none of us probably would unless we have law degrees on this specifically. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it, um, it takes sort of having an understanding of what can be done on an evidentiary basis with certain evidence. And, um, you know, what what people don't always really fully understand is that they have no confidentiality with any of the players in the criminal justice system. If they could have a conversation with a lawyer on a confidential basis, the lawyer could say, you know what, don't mention, when you say I called a friend, you don't have to say I called a friend that I know from Alcoholics Anonymous, which I've actually had that come up come up in a conversation you can just say I called a friend why give that extra piece that you're part of Alcoholics Anonymous you know that's private right because that might get used later absolutely of course it'll get used to against against the complainant to try to harm their credibility so um you know there's just you don't have to tell your whole life story you you should tell what's relevant to this offense so in fact there, not only is there no confidentiality, even though it feels like a kind of an intimate setting where you're talking one-on-one with the police officer, it, it's the opposite of confidentiality. The, the police officer, the Crown, the victim witness worker all have duties to disclose. So it's actually the opposite of confidentiality. They have to tell everything, no matter what it is, to the defense um, lawyer in the case. So, um, so, so, you know, that very first step there could be so much more 
support and help um, that, that isn't uh, currently part of the process. So a complaint goes in, they give a statement, and then they wait for the investigation. And the investigation could um, result in no charges being laid. And there's absolutely no appeal process to that. And, um, and I've dealt with clients that are, are you know, completely distraught about that decision. And in fact, you, you, I'm sure you know about it. Many people know about the unfounded report by Robin Doolittle of the Globe and Mail um, a number of years ago that pointed out, that discovered through her investigation that police forces all across Canada have incredibly, had incredibly high unfounded rates, meaning that they weren't laying charges in sexual assault cases, and they were way disproportionately higher than any other crime mm-hmm. where they just didn't find they had the basis to lay a charge. Um, now those numbers are way down and there's a differences in the way that they categorize unfounded cases. Um, there's also committees set up in the community that are trying to review these files, but there's still a lot of work to be done in that area. That's so, I mean, folks should go and read that um, really seminal article in the Globe and Mail, but um in terms of sort of, you know, a survivor goes in there, I would be incredibly nervous. I would be, I would have lots of feelings going on. I tell my story that I don't fully realize that's not confidential. Lots of folks have access to that. I'm probably over providing detail. And then to hear that the investigation's not going forward and it's sort of this black box as to why that is. Um, and that just to clarify, that's fully within the police's decision-making. Um okay. Yes. And so um, the police have a standard. Um, they have to determine whether they have reasonable probable grounds to lay a charge. But there's, as you can imagine, there's a lot of discretion in, in that applying that test. Um, and so sometimes there's certain things, um, you know, even a word that's used that cause them to sort of be concerned about whether or not they have grounds. One such word is repressed memories. So people misuse language all the time, right? And if someone goes in and and talks about historic sexual assault and says, you know, I've repressed these memories, but you know, then I saw this person and and it it triggered it and I remembered it all. And what they really mean is I suppressed these memories. I wasn't, I tried to not think about them, but when they use repressed, what that means to law enforcement is, oh, these memories were gone. And now they've emerged. And that seems kind of, I don't know, is that possible? There's case law out there that says, you know, that's not reliable to have a a memory that you didn't have and all of a sudden appeared. And so, you know, something as simple as using the wrong word can really harm um, the chances of a, a charge being laid. Oh, that's such a fine line. Like I, I'm, I'm overwhelmed by that thinking about going through and wanting to choose my words so carefully in that context. That um, comes from a real case that I just got a decision on yesterday. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Now, when we're one of the sort of key things that often gets brought up, and I know I'm pausing your storyline quite a bit here, but I think there's so much goodness in it, um, is sort of you know, if, if a survivor for all kinds of reasons, miss the window of time to get a rape kit done. Mm. And that that's a very specific um, window, you know, there's different days around which parts of the rape kit can get done, but you know, if you're a week or two out, it's gone. Um, and what, what else would 
be part of an investigation in terms of providing support to the statement that the survivor puts forward? Well, that is the problem with um, sexual assault investigations after, you know, whether they're years and years in the past or even just beyond the period of a sexual assault kit. Um, But there are ways, you know, investigative methods to corroborate a witness's testimony, talking to witnesses that might have, um, you know, have something to offer that can corroborate the story. Um, collecting video, um, if that's still available. Again, that's time sensitive as well. But but the bottom line is that, um, you know, in the in the very old days, there was a requirement for corroboration of uh, in a sexual assault case. That legal requirement is no longer there. So there is nothing to prevent a charge of sexual assault proceeding based solely on the complainant's testimony. And just so I, you know understand fully corroboration means someone else saying the same thing. Right. Yeah, exactly. Sort of um, supporting, you know, even just peripheral details, you know, like um, if she says, uh, if a complainant says, you know, I, I left the bar and went home with this guy. If someone else was at the bar and saw her leaving with him, that corroborates her statement, you know, just simple things like that. And sometimes, you know, this, that this is, the key sort of aspect of a sexual assault uh, criminal charge is that very few people are witnesses, right? This is something that happens between two people and there's no witnesses, but there are ways to corroborate the case um, through peripheral details. Um, And so that's all a police investigation can do um, is try to gather whatever possible evidence there might be. Now, that kind of leads us into another topic, but maybe we'll hold on the social media and texting part of it because that's a new part of criminal investigations that wasn't always available. Um, And it can be uh, both beneficial and problematic. Yeah, let's keep going through sort of the storyline of what it is. So I've, I've gone to the police, I've provided my statement, they've launched an investigation. Let's, let's pretend that they've decided to lay charges. Where to now? Okay. Um, Bail will be an issue, um, and um, the complainant can expect that part of the bail conditions, if he's released, which most people are released on bail, will be a non-communication, non-association with them, likely non-attendance at their residence employment education. Um, So there is some protection from the bail order, and um, if there's any contact, they should immediately call the police and there'll be a charge laid. Um, But there is sort of a black hole of waiting. And, um, you know, there's the Victim Witness Assistance Program, which is um, a a great program that helps um, sort of keep complainants informed about what's going on. But a lot of times they're in the dark too. You know, there's there's these long periods of waiting. The the accused is allowed some time to um, get a lawyer, get legal aid, review the disclosure um, that's provided by the Crown. Um, But the next thing that happens is basically a determination of whether the person is going to plead guilty or not guilty. Um, Very few cases of sexual assault result in a guilty plea, but sometimes there's a plea bargain negotiated between the Crown and the defense lawyer. And um, it's important to know that uh, the complainant doesn't get a say in that. 
So mm. often a, a complainant will be consulted by the crown. Um, and, you know, I think having been a former crown, I think I can speak for most crowns that they, they're very hopeful that the complainant will, you know, agree to, you know, and, the, and they'll take into consideration the wants and desires of, of the complainant. But the bottom line is a crown can make a decision about a plea bargain that's contrary to the wishes of the complainant. And there's nothing a complainant can do about that. So what that means in sort of layperson's terms, I go for it. I put a statement in. I'm in a black box waiting for sort of the investigation to um, play out. Then I find out that, yes, criminal charges are going to be laid. There's a bail. Um, Then I'm in a black box again. Then I find out, oh, the the Crown is pursuing a plea bargain. Um, He seems amenable to it. I don't really love that idea but maybe it just goes forward. Like it feels um, coming from sort of my work and our perspective that we want things to be survivor centered, meaning survivors control every step of what happens post the event of a sexual assault. And the reason being, as we all know, a sexual assault is really at its core, the complete removal of control um, and the sexual invasion thereof. So sort of part of that healing is re-putting control into their hands. This this is really not sort of aligned to that in a lot of ways, right? There's a lot of sort of things that they just have to wait and hear, wait and hear, wait and know. Um, And and then really obvious things that they actually might be in disagreement of depending on how it plays out. Right. Right. And, and so, I mean, this is sort of exactly why I think there needs to be reform and how it needs to be reformed because um, really complainants experience complete disempowerment you know, uh, they're really at the mercy of, of what decisions are made on their behalf. Um, and so, you know, eventually um, the matter is likely to go to a hearing and the complainant will be required to testify. Um, what preparation does a complainant get to testify? Um, they're given their video statement. They'll always have that to be able to review it. And, and it's so important that they do that because that's what the defense lawyer has, you know, and even if they remember what happened, it's really important that they review what they said, you know, mm-hmm. because there could be some variation in how they remember it now. And that comes completely from trauma and the way that we encode and retrieve memories when we're experiencing trauma. And if a, a police interview hasn't really embraced that, you know, then, then there could be problems with the interview itself. So uh, they go ahead. Sorry. And just yes. what, so I think we understand too, like the, the statement is provided and then, you know, on average or in theory, how much longer could it be until the hearing happens? Like how long is this memory sort of that we're needing to hold to be exactly sort of true to what we put in the statement months? Oh, it would be unusual if you're testifying within a year of mm-hmm. having given that statement, you know, and sometimes it's, it's several years. There is people might know about uh, Supreme Court of Canada r- ruling up about delay and that there's some limits on delay, but what you should know, and, and this is really an important topic that I'm um, trying to actually litigate that if the, if the uh, accused waives the delay, then that's a okay. And so I've had a case that went, eight years and then the, and then the accused died. And that was simply because the accused just kept waiving the delay and only he had the right to a a trial that without delay, the complainant had no right. 
to to have right. the hearing held without delay. So anyway, there there can be a very long time uh, between the statement and the testimony. And um, the Crown will do preparation with uh, the complainant. And again, I'm a former Crown, so I am not in any way being critical. They have to do preparation in a certain way. They can't go into the detail of the evidence because whenever you talk to someone about you know, their story, there's going to be new information. They're, they're going to add some detail that didn't come out in the original statement. And when that happens, the Crown is now a witness. They now have to disclose <clears throat> the new information that's been revealed. They could, it could cause a delay in the trial. It co- could cause them to not be able to be the assigned Crown anymore. So there's all kinds of problems that can arise from going into too much depth uh, in preparing a witness um, regarding their evidence. So consequently, crowns will, will stay pretty superficial and give sort of general advice, but not really do that kind of prep that you see on TV as far as, you know, let's do a practice cross-examination and let's, you know, get you really ready for this process. And that's what will happen for the survivor, though. They'll be put out there to be cross-examined. Oh, and absolutely. they will... The purpose of that is to find loopholes. The purpose of that is to find misalignments and what they said in the statement versus now versus, oh my goodness. It's like, frankly, they're being put on trial in some ways to make sure that they're held to account. Oh, they, there's no question that that's how it feels. Um, the, the strategy of the defense is to attack their credibility and their reliability. So anything that they can come up with as far as a motive to fabricate, that will be suggested anything to do with things that interfere with reliability, like mental health issues, alcohol, um, just even passage of time, those will all be, you know, used in an attack. And, um, you know, inconsistencies are sort of put out there as a hallmark of, of lying when they're not, mm. you know, and most yeah. judges, you know, recognize that. And they know if someone's inconsistent on a sort of a peripheral detail, oh, that can be expected. They expect sort of consistency on the main uh, event. But but the problem is that complainants are, are attacked about and they say, well, today you're saying this, but on your statement to the police, you said something different. And that upsets a complainant, right? That upsets a witness. And they're like, oh. and I know that it goes through their mind that, oh my God, I've blown this whole case because I've made that mistake, you know? And I, I usually try to explain, look at you, that is not the end of the case at all. Try to do your best to explain why there's been this inconsistency, why you remembered a little bit differently. But judges do understand that, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean you're lying, that you've said something inconsistent. But that's the the sort of the narrative that the defense will push is that if there's inconsistencies, then she can't be telling the truth. So, so it's really tough. You've sort of started to also tease out some comparisons to the perfect victim here, which would be having a really clear story that has full detailed memory that is consistent over more than a year time and is retained that doesn't have any significant mental health challenges in relation to that. So when I think about frankly, every survivor that I've ever talked to, of course, it has a mental health impact. (laughs) Um, And of course, it could lead to new diagnoses or new challenges, because that's what trauma does, um, but not to the ideal victim. And 
<laughs> that there's been no sort of uh, coping mechanisms engaged with as part of that healing and that trauma in the sense of, you know, um, alcoholism or sort of new drug use or whatever that might be, um, in comparison to the new victim or the perfect victim. Wow. And I mean, they go after, why did you do this? Why didn't you do that? You know, how could you still be, you know, communicating with him, um, or her the, the day after, you know, and, and, look at here's a text message where you said I love you you know and that was after the sexual assault yeah they throw up their hands and say you know no more questions and and it just feeds into that myth of of the perfect victim and I think that's so important because I know in every training and workshop we give there's this sense of like people fundamentally don't understand why a survivor would retain a relationship with somebody who has harmed them But I think we need to really step back and sort of think about, you know, in all of our relationships, be they sort of intimate partner or familial, has there been harm caused at some moment, like for some of us to be able to just get through life where there hasn't been, you know, um, a trust violation, some form of abuse embedded in a relationship. I think that's incredibly common and we don't hold other relationships to that sort of standard, like harm happens in relationships. And for a lot of reasons, we, many of us continue in those relationships. Um, and that doesn't mean that the harm didn't happen. (laughs) That's actually, and really, powerful bravery in some ways to sort of say that I, I I love this person and they harm me and I want that harm accounted for and I want to still love them. And we just don't know what to do with that. And yet I think all of us can probably think of relationships that there is harm in it at some point in the course of that lifetime of that relationship in our own lives. Absolutely. And, and so complainants themselves buy into that narrative and they start questioning themselves and saying, why, why didn't I leave the relationship? Or why did I say, I love you when, you know, it's important to sort of explain and understand that this is a, this is a a love relationship. You loved this person. And as you say, there's tolerance for imperfection in a relationship. And that doesn't make you uh, crazy or, or, you know, um, an unbelievable witness. The fact that you still have feelings for a person that you had a, you know, a relationship with, despite them having hurt you. And so it's important for everyone to understand that not only, and, and the courts have there finally in recent years are cases out there that now say that they say you can't use conduct after an event of sexual assault to try to suggest that that isn't how a a victim of sexual assault is expected to act. And, and that's been real progress because, um, you know, they've clothed judges used to clothe that in the term common sense and say, Mm -hmm. well, it's common sense that you wouldn't expect someone who was sexually assaulted to say, I love you, you know, and now the courts have said, no, that's, that's, reasoning that's uh, fraught with um, stereotypes and, and myths. So, but, you know, there's still cases out there that don't necessarily follow um, that line of thinking. But I think part of the problem too, and what reflects the very, very low reporting rates um, of complainants is that 
they themselves hold themselves to this standard of I should have done something differently. And so I can't come forward now because I did say I love you after the fact, you know. That's a really important point. So part of sort of what's played out this past week is a lot of um, wonderings in terms of the Western events, why we haven't seen more formal reports. And does that mean that these things are not true? Mm. And I've been trying to really um, put the message out that we actually know, and and this research is a few years old for sure, but uh, 33 out of a thousand survivors will actually report it to the police. That's sort of your baseline number. And yeah, uh, my and then, research has shown they're even lower than that. Yeah, it's, wow. it's under 10% wow. that actually report to the police in, in the most recent um, Stats Canada that, that I'm familiar with. It's very low. Well, and so I think we need to, that's really helpful. Thank you, Karen, for updating my stat. <laughs> um, and I think it's like, let's think about the good reasons why they don't that in fact, there's really good reasons about the system that we've just walked our way through that's incredibly overwhelming and perhaps doesn't serve their needs. Um, There's good reasons why in their own sort of internalized shame, their own internalized biases that we all hold around what I could have done better. I don't sort of deserve to go through this then um, to seek that form of justice. And also just really informed decisions when I talk to survivors around, you know, in terms of what I want to move forward with, it isn't, it isn't that sort of form of healing. It's another form of healing. And there's wisdom in that for sure. But I, I think there's this sort of narrative out there that if, if we don't have the formal data and the formal reports that somehow that didn't happen. And in fact, we should expect that, that we will not have that data. Right. And will you lead me to, to you know, my concern about the, the situation at Western right now and the topic of conversation. Of course, there's so many positive things from a, a sexual violence perspective, someone who's trying to combat sexual violence in that it's in the spotlight and it's being talked about and there's lots of positive things that are being done, lots of support for complainants. And, and so, you know, that is very positive. But to me, there's this gap and the gap is no one is talking about why people aren't coming forward that there sort of tends to be that victim blaming again and, and sort of this pressure put on, on the survivors of this sexual violence that's occurred on campus and, you know, and saying, well, still haven't heard from them. The police haven't talked to many people, you know, we're still kind of waiting to hear from these people. Nobody's asking why. If you had your house broken into, would you be hesitating to call the police? You know, if, if you were uh, hit by a car, would you hesitate? No. But what's wrong, not with the complainants, what's wrong with the system that they need to access to seek justice? And in, that's where I think there needs to be more discussion. How This existing criminal justice system for survivors of sexual violence is not user-friendly. And that's why, I mean, the statistics and the, the research shows that fear of the criminal justice system, fear of not being believed, in addition to the self-blame and shame, are the reasons, these are barriers to access justice. And I just wrote a paper recently saying, it's a charter violation. Women are being denied access to justice because of practices and policies about the treatment of 
sexual violence survivors in the criminal justice system. They don't have enough participation. They don't have enough uh, voice. And they know, we all know, if you engage the criminal justice system, you risk harm. You risk re-traumatization. Now, if, if someone said, well, you can, you can call the police, you can access the criminal justice system, but there's just a risk that we might have to break your arm. Of course, everyone would think that's ridiculous, right? You're no, kidding. you know, that's not fair. But why, when everyone knows that re-traumatization by going through this process is a very likely outcome, do we think that's okay? Do we think that's genuine access to justice? And so I say, we need reform. We need to put the spotlight on what is this system that people are refusing to access? And it's not just the criminal justice system, it's even campus police. You know, it's all sort of lumped together that when I give up my privacy to access justice, um, I risk harm. And I don't think I'm willing to do that. And I don't blame anyone who isn't willing to do that because I think, you know, the system um, is set up um, you know, it's a criminal justice system set up for to ensure that we prove that crime was committed beyond a reasonable doubt. And there's a saying that that's still valid in that better that 10 guilty man goes free than one innocent man is convicted. Um, and so that is an uneven playing field. Um, I've heard and, that before. Mm-hmm. Let's, I just want to pause there because I think for folks who are not deeply connected to the criminal justice system, um, this is a new concept. It's really at its core built with the framing that we would prefer to see guilty men go go free, and the the language has been here, um, rather than see an innocent person put in jail. And so we wanna make sure we weight it so that everything is done to make sure we're only putting away super, super guilty, essentially. (laughs) Because the idea of putting away someone that could be innocent is is the worst outcome. And that's the framing of it. Um, And the repercussions of that is this system around sexual assault in particular. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, in my view, um, there's a few ways that that we can try to balance the rights of complainants. Because everyone is protected by the, the charter, which guarantees our equality and our access to justice. So, you know, it it wasn't long ago that in the criminal courts, that was a new concept that it isn't only accused people that have charter rights, it's actually victims and complainants that have charter rights too. Um, There was a case in 1999 that sort of that statement was made. And before that, it really wasn't clear. And I know in my personal experience as a Crown, when I argued that in in one case, the defense lawyer said, oh, no, you know, it's only the accused that's protected. And, you know, it's like, no, <laughs> you know, let's look at this. So um, so this is an area that needs more focus. Why are people not coming forward? Not because of their own. I mean, I completely agree that there are uh, personal reasons uh, and what is best for a person's healing. And that should be the paramount Um you know, factor in making a decision is what is best for, for my healing. Um, so of course that's important, but we should also look at what is this system that we're asking them 
to go to um, so that we can address criminal violence. So, you know, in my view, the current system, it's really allowing for sexual violence with impunity. And, you know, until we fix it, there's no real repercussions with only less than 10% actually coming forward and then a much smaller percentage seeing a conviction. We're really, you know, dealing with very little of the sexual violence that's in our society. So on that note, I have sort of two, two ways that I want to land us here. One is what, what access, what supports, like what should a survivor do if they're wanting to go through this process, knowing all of what you've just told us, um, who could we suggest they reach out to? Like, where are, what do they do? Well, so given what we have without any reform, there is, uh, this sounds a bit self-serving, but it's not. There is a program called the Independent Legal uh, Assistance for Survivors of Sexual Violence um, program. It used to be a pilot program, only accessible if you lived in certain places. Now, as of May of this year, it's rolled out to all of Ontario and it allows for four hours of free legal advice. Um, I happen to be on the panel, but there's lots of other very qualified lawyers on the panel. Um, you, all you have to do is apply and get a voucher and you've, you can use you know, up to four hours and talk to a lawyer. And you know, before you go to the police or to the or campus security, you can have a conversation about what you should talk about. Mm-hmm. And, and you can tell that person your story and they can say, you know what, this part is not relevant. You don't need to talk about that. You know, this part you should talk more about, by the way, you know, all those text messages, make sure you show your phone, make sure you, maybe you print them out. Um, You're worried about being too nervous. Maybe, you know, make some point form uh, notes before you go, should I bring those notes with me? No. You know, there's all kinds of things that, that uh, advice that someone can receive if they access this free program. So um, I think that's at least one step. Um, it so, can be, yeah. And folks just Google independent legal assistance program, Ontario, and it will be clear where they go from there. Yeah. It, the actual wording is. Um, oh, the, the wording is, is actually important and, and I'll, I'll provide it to you so you can provide a link because um I've even Googled it to give it to people. And if you don't put the right words in, it doesn't come up. It's not very well advertised, which is a bit frustrating. I'm um, kidding. But and it's those, not a helpful title either. So yeah, I, I will no, make sure that we put that in the notes. No, it uses victim in it instead of survivor. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I've noted that. Um, those vouchers can be used throughout the process. So um, use an hour before you go to the police, but then, you know, you can use some through the process where you have questions, you can use it to help right. prepare you to testify. Um, so that is a resource that I think is underused, um, that could help. Um, but I think I would like to see more focus just in the conversation in general about what is this system that people are not accessing. Well. And that was sort of the second part of my thinking. If you could um, wave your magic wand and choose, you know, two or three, whatever it is, parts of the system that it would re- that would just magically change. And I, I feel like it's sort of an unfair question because I, I I get the sense that the 
the whole structure of the system from its very premise has a fallacy, like a problem. So how do we then, is it always going to be very piecemeal? But I guess I'm asking you that piecemeal question. If you could, you know, tomorrow change two or three parts that would support survivors, what would they be? Well, yes. I mean, I think the ideas that I have for, for reform uh, aren't guaranteed, but I think to, to change everything, but I think they could really mitigate the harm that uh, survivors experience. And I think it could open up and, and reduce some of those barriers so that people are more willing to come forward. So there's really two things. One is I think um, survivors should be allowed free legal representation throughout the process. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean changing the, the bipartisan type of process we have where it's crown versus accused, but there could be a much enhanced role of legal counsel for the complainant throughout the process, which means you could talk to a lawyer and have a lawyer there when you give the statement to the police. The lawyer could um, even liaison with the police and the complainant during the investigation, point to evidence that they could collect. They could be involved in setting the bail conditions. They, you know, they know certain things that might not be known that are important to add to the bail. They could be involved in the negotiations of any plea bargaining. Then they could be present in the trial to protect the privacy interests and the, and the well-being of the complainant. You know, there's things like um, testimonial aids that, you know, clo using closed circuit television to have someone testify to get them out of the courtroom. That's a, a, a classic example of where the complainant's needs are different than the prosecutor, because the prosecutor may want to have the complainant in the courtroom so that everyone can see and it'll be better chance, more sympathy and a better chance for conviction. But the complainant's best interests are to be out of the courtroom to prevent, you know, so much re-traumatization. So to have a lawyer that is there just for those interests, just for those interests that are specific to the complainant, and then have a right of appeal, you know, be there and, and make submissions at sentencing. So there's a role through the entire process for independent legal counsel that could help um, mitigate the harm in my view. Um, the second change I think would be um, introducing more um, availability of restorative justice. So I think there are cases where complainants aren't really, it isn't really helpful to them to go through this formal trial process. All they want, and I've talked to many clients, all they want is an apology and maybe a bit of an explanation of what the hell, why did that happen, you know? And so um, restorative justice could offer that. And as long as a complainant, or sorry, as long as the accused person is willing to acknowledge guilt, then it could move to like a healing circle type of process where there's a discussion, where there's education and both parties walk away with, you know, a, a, on the path to healing you know? And so I think yeah. right now that is not used for sexual violence. There's a, very rarely a, um, will it be utilized. And I think it, there should be sort of an opportunity to really widen the use of restorative justice. I wish our listeners could see the amount of head nodding I'm doing to that second point yeah. in particular, because um, as folks may or may not know, ANOVA, we provide a program on campus that's now been um, provided to multiple campuses across the country.
country called man-made and it's for men um, who are mandated by the institution to take it because they've committed some form of sexual violence against a student code of conduct and it's always tricky because the whole program is centered around some of the values of restorative justice not all of them by any means um, but around taking accountability, owning the impact of your action, um, sort of what does a good apology really entail? How do I then also take part in larger processes out of this moment to shift the impact of my behavior? And we feel a bit sort of hands tied through it because at the end of the day, you know, one of the core tenets of restorative justice, which we could do a whole podcast on, um, is sort of for it to be survivor driven. And for the survivor to determine the outcome of what happens for him. And also for there to be an apology at the core sort of center of that. And frankly, he cannot write a full apology or say one to provide to her um, because he would incriminate himself potentially through that in our program. And uh, I think sort of the ability to embed that in the criminal justice system is so important because that is like you had said, what I hear from so many survivors is that they're not wanting, frankly, jail time. They're wanting a sense that what you did hurt me and you're going to say that, and you're going to say that that is not okay. Um, and I need to hear that. And the system, unless it's set up differently, doesn't actually allow him to do that. Yeah. And I think that that is the lack of that sort of restorative approach is another barrier to people accessing justice because they say to themselves, you know, this really harmed me, but I don't, I care about this person and I don't want them to go to jail, you know, but if they knew that there was a way to deal with it that didn't involve the person going to jail, I think people would be more willing to say, okay, this is something that I, that I'm willing to come forward and, and try to get this, um, you know, dealt with. And I think it's great for offenders because I'm sure there's many of them would love to say, I'm sorry, would love to apologize, but simply it's not uh, legally recommended and they don't want to risk going to jail. And so they have to resist saying it. So, you know, there's just, I think if there's a, a bit more political will um, to make these reforms, um, there are some solutions out there. It's not a hopeless kind of process. Well, Karen, I feel like we could have dove in even more deeply in this parts of what you had brought up and that there's, my mind's actually mostly just full of questions, um, but we are at our time and I'm just so grateful of all the expertise that you did provide. I think it's incredibly heavy and sort of in some ways demoralizing to walk through the system and what it is like. But I think that's really important knowledge to put out um, to individual survivors. And then also the knowledge of how, how problematic the system is writ large and what some of the really specific changes are that you've highlighted um, so that we can pursue those. So that's sort of twofold been very, very helpful to walk through. Well, you're very welcome. It was my pleasure. And I, I think maybe just as a parting word, I would just say to those survivors that do engage the criminal justice system, you know, you, you can, um, regardless of the things you can't control, you should be very, very proud of do whatever you decide to do. And, um, you know, if you choose not to engage the system, I absolutely support that decision. 
But if you do decide to engage the system, don't hang everything on the outcome because you have no control over what a judge decides, but you do have control over the fact that you decided to do this hard thing. And I, I just hope people walk away feeling proud of themselves, regardless of the outcome. Thank you. So thank you, Annalise, for, for asking me today. For sure. All right, folks, we'll see you next time. Piece by Piece is a production of ANOVA, a future without violence. ANOVA is on social media, and you can learn more about Piece by Piece and ANOVA at www.anovafuture.org. A reminder that if you need to talk, please call our 24-hour crisis and support line at 1-800-265-1576. Our sexual assault counselors are available for virtual appointments, and our shelters are open. We're here for you. A special thank you to Najee Naim Zada for technical production, Emma Richard for visual content creation, and music for this podcast is from the album Sweet and Joyful by Crowander, the track Humming. Music access downloaded and used under Creative Commons license by freemusicarchive.org. See you next time.